Hi, I'm Monse, and this is Musings of the Artist, a podcast where I have meaningful conversations with all kinds of artists. My conversation today is with Tomás Q. Morin and Philip Metris. Tomás Q. Morin is a poet, translator, and editor. His books include the collection of poems Machete and the memoir Let Me Count the Ways, as well as the poetry collections Patient Zero and A Larger Country. Philip Metris is a poet, translator, and director of the Peace, Justice, and Human Rights Program at John Carroll University. He is the author of 10 books, including Shrapnel Maps, The Sound of Listening, Poetry as Refuge and Resistance, Pictures at an Exhibition, and Sand Opera. Both Philip and Tomas have received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts, among many other honors. I met Tomas and Philip through the MFA program that I'm in, and knowing they are friends, I thought it would be fun to be in conversation with them together. It was such a rich conversation. We talked all about vulnerability and art, literature as a home and companion, and the joy and discovery that happens in the creative process. Tomas and Philip share much wisdom in this conversation. So let's get to it. Here is my conversation with Tomas Q. Morin and Philip Metris. I'm so excited to do this, to be in conversation with both of you, two poets and teachers who I admire greatly. So I normally start these conversations with the big, the biggest question of all, sort of tell us who you are. And to start, you know, you're both poets, translators, professors. So how do you describe who you are, perhaps beyond those descriptors? Phil should go first, age before beauty. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm Philip Metris. Among the things you may know me for, the writing, I'm also, of course, a son, a father, a husband, a lover of my dog, Flash, and our two dear daughters who are engaging their own blooming and their own questing and their own um, discovering. So those are the, the people and the beings that, that are closest to me. So I think I'll just stop there. Wow. I feel like it's, it's incredibly difficult to one-up Phil. I mean, you're like so comprehensive. I'm a citizen of planet Earth. Um, <laughs> Uh, in, addition to, in, in addition to, uh, I mean, a recent arrival, recent arrival, you know, um, I'm a father, yeah, partner, son, you know, all the, all the sort of like basic things. I like to drink water uh, and eat food. Um, yeah, that's um, in addition to being, being, a, being a writer and a observer and witness of all of our foibles and follies. Well, one of the, one of the things I like about you, Tomas, is that you have a just a wonderfully um, goofy sense of humor, and so you're you're also someone who's who's uh, who enjoys a good laugh, and we see that in your work as well. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. It's 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 like that Superman thing. The planet that I'm from, I'm actually the least funny person, you know? <laughs> um, but here it's like I'm super funny. So it's you know you take what you can get. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, you should add comedian to that descriptor, Tomas. <laughs> um, 
I wanted to talk about sort of vulnerability in art making. And Tomas, you know, you write deeply personal topics about, you know, like obsessive compulsive disorder, depression, anxiety, and more in your prose and poems. And Phil, you know, you two, you're working often in addressing political and historical realities. And I imagine in both cases, you know, you might feel quite vulnerable when that work comes out into the world or is about to. So I wanted to ask if, well, first, if that's true for you. And, you know, if so, how do you hold that vulnerability? I feel like when I was, I guess, getting my formal education in academia to, you know, with the hope to one day become a writer, there really wasn't any conversations about how to do exactly what you just explained, Monse. Um, you know, it was just like, here's the craft, right? Here's the technique um, uh, to make the thing. But then, you know, how to, yeah, I mean, how to be a sensitive person who is putting that sensitivity out, like, on the page for either everyone's scrutiny or no one's scrutiny, right? Because there's a giant yawn and nobody cares. I received no guidance on that, you know, and that was uh, a thing that I just had to figure out the hard way. I I think having experiences where people have reached out about uh, complete strangers, about work that is that I've done that has meant a lot to them has helped me achieve a good balance in terms of, you know, I don't get too high, I don't get too low, and, you know, just kind of keep my nose to the grindstone, trying to do work that is meaningful to me and the people I care about. And, yeah, you know, just hoping that it'll mean something to others. But, yeah, I mean, it's just... Yeah, how to how to how to be a sensitive person, right? In the yeah, in the world is I don't know, I feel like that's that's a task and a project that goes beyond, you know, the the art, you know, the art that we make. That's the struggle. I'm struck by the fact that um in your response, Tomas, that that not a lot of attention was paid in our MFAs and things like that to what it meant to be an artist. And to take those risks, just that those risks were necessary. And, you know, in some ways that reflects kind of the wider zeitgeist of, of that time, which was basically you did, you did sort of what you had to do. And, uh, you know, we, we sucked it up and we, we, we shared the, our vulnerability. It's also true, like I, for me in particular, and, uh, you know, I'm sure to some degree, um, this may be true for you as well, Tomas, that, that there was the example of the confessional poets who saw in the text of their life something to share, something that, that was worth, you know, breaking a kind of fourth wall for, that, that somehow that the text was not simply a space of the purely fictive or imaginative, but also where real souls are sort of grinding their, their teeth and sweating their, uh, you know, their blood in a sense. You know, if you read people like Plath or Sexton or any number of other poets who, who really just were so courageous on the page, and, and it's, it's hard not to, not to want to figure out what that's like to, to gain that kind of level of I don't know, uh, self-freedom or catharsis or whatever it is. Um, that, being, that being said, it's terrifying, utterly terrifying. Like once you get into that space where, you know, you are going to 
share something that that's actually pretty close to your to the truth of your life, and then you're setting that you know in a, in a public space to be judged, to be read and 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 judged. You know, ultimately, that's just very. It's a very sweat inducing <laughs> activity right. we perform. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny when you said earlier the uh, the wider uh, zeitgeist, your D was a little soft and wider, and I heard whiter oh. <laughs> zeitgeist. Yeah, and um, and you know that's like that's that's part of the equation too. I mean, Plath and Sexton, you know, and uh, W. D. Snodgrass, and you know all these confessionals, and you know Robert Lowell, who was you know their teacher and mentor. Like they had the privilege of writing from a position where they knew who their audience was. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think, like, Sylvia Plath was writing for my grandparents as readers. She wasn't thinking of my grandparents as readers, people who came from a background that was incredibly different from hers, right? But, you know, this built-in traditional, you know, legacy white audience, which is then, you know supported uh, by, you know, a phalanx of white editors and publishers and reviewers and jurors of prizes and awards and fellowships. And it's like, for her, someone like, I'll just use Plath again as the example, being vulnerable for her is different than Gwendolyn Brooks being vulnerable on the page. You know, um, like if we're talking about, you know, um, narrow it and talk about contemporaries. It's it's not that there isn't risk for both, but the risk is, I think, different. Hmm. I mean, I was thinking also of people like, well, I think that in some ways, Lowell was deeply inspired by, although he, he wouldn't want to say it, uh, Allen Ginsberg and um, sure. you know, being a queer uh, Jew with uh, mental health issues, you know, or, or someone like Etheridge Knight is coming up right. in, a little bit later. I mean, they, they're doing similar kinds of work, but we do associate confessional, so-called confessional poetry with, with definitely a certain kind of East Coast, you know, upper crust, um, you know, white aesthetic, uh, which I think is right. unfortunate because I think that that work is actually much, much broader than that. But the, but the other question that you're kind of adding to that is what does it mean to engage in acts of vulnerability um, for whom are they and what are the dangers in that kind of activity? Right, right. And uh, how, how are those, how is that vulnerability received by communities, right? Longstanding communities that aren't necessarily the community you're writing out of. You know, even though th th those people in that community are probably the canon that a lot of us were uh, raised on, you know, in, in the classroom. Yeah, I sort of, sort of, Linked to this question that uh, you're both speaking to, I, you know, Tomas, I was I was reading the lecture um, that you recently gave to ABCFA, and there was a part that that really struck me, and it sort of ties to something you and I were speaking about a couple of days ago. You know, you were talking about all the work that goes into writing and how vulnerable that is to begin with, and and you wrote in, or you said in this lecture, if your book never sells, then it might feel like a minor tragedy. It takes courage to measure your writing time differently. When I write, I feel joy. In these terms, if that book I worked on for five years is never published, then it's okay because in the process I banked 2,000 hours of joy that will never depreciate. And 
And sort of I wanted to pause on that because, you know, I think that we are so goal focused, you know, and that we sometimes forget that the process of creating right. is the gift itself, you know, and, and, you know, it's sort of tied to this question of, of, of vulnerability too, you know, about like how, who gets published, right? And what if we don't? First of all, I, I'm, I'm right. so grateful that I scuffled so much when I started writing in my 20s. I, I had the most success, I, I think, translating, but I think that's partly because I was translating a somewhat exotic set of writers, poets, Russian poets, uh, who were really well known. And I think there was a little bit of a hunger for that in the, in the 90s. But I, I, I am so grateful that I spent so much time uh, scuffling so hard just to try to figure out how to do this thing, you know, we call writing a poem. That That's always the first place. But of course, you know, like in, in the middle of that, like I was envious of published writers and the success of writers that I knew and didn't know and, you know, ground my teeth endlessly about when my work would come out in a book form and the rest of it. I'm at this weird phase in my publishing life where people are asking me to to submit work and I'm always afraid that it's not that good. <laughs> so I hem and haw and I I try I try to just be mindful and protective of that necessarily necessary incubating phase that 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 I don't know that I think really good work comes from. So I mean I get solicited as as well, you know, to uh, to submit work and yeah there is that thing where you go from in the beginning you know in our generation still uh sending stuff out in the mail and you know waiting for months and kind of you know knocking on doors and and going around with your your, your poems uh, begging with your poems to a place where you know you've built a body of work you've built a life in this art form and there are people who have admired your work uh, for many years who you don't even know, who you've never even met, but who perhaps they become an editor and they reach out, right? They reach out because they're fans and they believe in your work and what you've done and they want to see what you're up to now. And it's a strange thing. Also, no preparation for that, right? There's no preparation for that as, as well. I pity the writer who gets to that spot who doesn't have a close group of people who uh, who they can trust to tell them the truth, you know, uh, who aren't afraid of, man, well, you know, if, if, if I don't tell Phil that this poem of his is, you know, the bee's knees, then, oh, man, you know, I, I won't be able to count on him for a blurb down the road or for a letter of rec for this or for that. And even even just saying it out hypothetically, uh, it just it just feels so gross. It feels so gross. Yes, exactly. I mean, you're talking about building authentic connections within the world that you're in, the, the literary world. And I've been thinking about, so the last, as you both know, like last two years I've been, or a, two, a year and a half, I've, um, I've had the privilege of dedicating a large chunk of my time to getting my MFA, still doing other things. But I was thinking about this question because as I'm getting ready to, to think about trying to publish my manuscript in the hopefully not too distant future, I was thinking about this question, you know, and I was thinking about how even if it never, no one sees this manuscript other than the people that have been helping me with it, my advisors and friends, I was thinking about how the last two years I have no, I've really 
come to know myself in a, such a deeper level and that I've obviously, I've definitely become a better writer. All these things that have given me such personal satisfaction and, and I think and just enrich my life on such a deep level. Like, yeah, it would be like the icing on the cake if I get this thing published down the road, but that's not the thing, you know? Um, uh, there's, there's such a joy in being able to recognize oneself in a way um, that, the, that the writing reveals. And um, in that process of, of unfolding is, it's just like, that, that's what I love so much about this, you know, like so actually so much more than, than, you know, like, you know, the book, you know, business. And I can say that now having had the work come into, into, <laughs> into fruition, into, in, you know, into book form. Cause before that, it's just like, Oh, it's just the book, the book, 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 book. But now I'm like, uh, what sustains me is just such that joyfulness and that intrigue of like following, you know, sentences and lines as they unfold and trying to figure out how this is going to reveal something about the world and myself that I haven't known before, you know? Phil, would you be willing to read one tree for us? And then we'll talk a little bit about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of poems that reveal my own vulnerability and, uh, and books that do, this is, this is it. So one tree, they wanted to tear down the tulip tree our neighbors last year. It throws a shadow over their vegetable patch, the only tree in our backyard. We said no. Now they've hired someone to chainsaw and arm the crux on our side of the fence, and my wife, in tousled hair and morning sweats, marches to stop the carnage mid-limb. It reminds her of her childhood home, a shady place to hide. She recites her litany of no, returns, Minutes later, the neighbors emerge. The workers point to our unblinded window. I want to say, it's not me. Slide out of view behind a wall of cupboards, ominous breakfast table, steam of tea, our two young daughters now alone. I want no trouble. Must I fight for my wife's desire for yellow blooms when my neighbor's tomatoes will stunt and blight and shade? Always the same story. Two people... One tree, not enough land or light or love. As with the baby brought to Solomon, someone must give. Dear neighbor, it's not me. Bloom shadowed, light deprived. They lower the chainsaw again. Wow, thank you so much. That poem gets me every time. <laughs> you know, I wanted to just to mention for people listening who have not yet listened to Poetry Unbound with Padrigo Tuma, who was wonderfully a guest a couple years ago on this podcast. But um, he he talks about this poem so beautifully and unpacks it. And, you know, he talks a lot about the obvious theme of conflict in here on sort of this granular level you know, with, with the neighbors, but also the, in the wider sense. But I wanted to also ask about, because to me, this poem is also about scarcity. And so I thought I would ask about scarcity for both of you, the perceived scarcity in the literary world or, or art world in general. Being amongst a lot of writers in the last year and a half, um, I've really felt that. I felt that a lot of people, that a lot of people feel this scarcity rather than the abundance that can be there? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I feel like there's a, especially 
uh, for writers who are coming up, you know, trying to earn their chops and, you know, grinding away, trying to find homes for, you know, their poems or their essays or their stories. And then, you know, trying to build up an audience, you know, from from zero, you know, from the ground up and then eventually, you know, send out a book. I feel like there's it's easy to feel like there's a scarcity of places to publish your work when uh, I, I mean, I would argue that there's probably more places to publish that's publishing work now than there ever has been. You know, it's not like, you know, the 1980s or the 1970s where there's a couple dozen uh, journals and quarterlies and reviews. And, you know, getting a spot in one of those is going to be hard because if, you know, an editor's like, well, I can either give this complete unknown, you know, a, a give them this page to publish this poem, or, you know, I can take uh, this poem that Seamus Heaney sent me, you know, and give, and give Seamus that page. You know, that's, that, that's, that's a pretty big lift, you know, to knock, to knock Seamus Heaney off. But yeah, there's, there's so many, uh, there's such a diverse uh, array of uh, journals and magazines, print, electronic out there. There's, you know, all these podcasts, there's such an abundance of attention being given to really good work. Uh, but I think the perception of scarcity comes from a writer who hasn't yet come across uh, the editors who will respond to their work the best. And that's that's just a trial and error thing. You know, that's a trial and error thing that, you know, that takes sometimes it's the 10,000 hours like that's that's it's the 10,000 hours you spend on your work and the 10,000 hours you spend trying to find uh, the community of editors. Patrick Madden during a panel once was talking about you know you send your work out you know and if it 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 gets rejected like 20 times it just hasn't found the right editor yet I mean maybe it needs work it could be that too (laughs) but you know at at certain points or certain times it's not even about the work it's about just not finding the right home. I sort of think of this in the way I think of relationships, you know, in our own lives, um, our most intimate relationships, Uh, you know, on the one hand, in our digital age, it's so possible to, to publish in all manner of ways and venues. I mean, you could find a home for just about anything. So there's super abundance, there's super abundance of, you know, all sorts of people and options and dating and, you know, and in publishing. And yet, you know, what, what, what do we really crave? You know, as Tomas said, we really crave someone who knows and values what it is that we're trying to do in, in the kinds of ways that any loving relationship would, would, would see us, you know, in, in our, in our most authentic, you know, manifestation. So, um, that that's why poetry has always appealed to me in the sense that it doesn't require, you know, masses of people to to love it. It just requires, you know, just a few people to, you know, have this sense of awe about it, you know, and to and to to love what it is that anyone has done. And I, I think the same probably goes for essay writers and story writers as well to some degree. Um, so there is, like, I also think, you know, there is scarcity. There's a scarcity of value in our culture to the work of artists, uh, particularly um, writers. I mean, there's not a ton of money out there in the world. So there's legitimate scarcity. 
but there's also something else, you know, there's community and there's uh, relationship and there are those great editors that Tomas is talking about. So Tomas, I was thinking about your, your memoir and I read it like when it very, when it first came out and I was sort of going back and reading through my notes of the beautiful um, book. And I remember that there was a, a long run on sentence that you wrote to sort of match the mood of the scene that you were writing about sort of in the way that the sentence was structured really sort of stirs an anxiety in the reader to match the narrator's experience. And I was really um, like, I just n- noted that. I was like, wow, that's, that was pretty, pretty cool, actually. Um, and, and Phil, you know, you, you've talked about the pantoum in a, a beautiful lecture that you gave and how that repetition of the form enacts the ruminating, um, which can have a haunting effect. And in your, your latest book, Shrapnel Maps, you use redacted text, prose poems, documents, and other forms, also sort of mirroring the subject matters that you're speaking to. And so I would love to hear from both of you about form enacting the subject or feeling that you're writing into, because I've really noticed that in both of your work. For me, in that, in that um, uh, section, once that uh, you referred to in the memoir, when I was doing the first draft of that memoir, I, I thought there's, uh, there needs to be a place, I need to make room in this book, make a moment where I can try, you know, as best as I can, because language is, you know, is... Uh, has its limits, but as best as I can to create for a reader the experience of what it is like to have an obsessive-compulsive disorder mind for, you know, five minutes, you know, like just to give them a taste, because I feel like there's still so uh, much uh, misinformation about um, about obsessive-compulsive disorder. People, like, they think they know what it means, but they, and then they don't. And and also because obsessive compulsive disorder is in the most recent DSM, the DSM five, it's now under the umbrella of anxiety disorders. And like most anxiety disorders, it uh, symptomatically presents in ways that are very unique to the person who's experiencing it. So my OCD uh, will probably present in a different way than you know someone else's. OCD. Um, and I felt like it was just really, it was really important to me to give them, yeah, give the reader, try to give the reader a taste, a taste of that. Because uh, it's, it's, I, I, I feel like that's what I'm always after when I'm, when I'm reading a book. It's like, I want a taste of someone else's mind, you know, uh, and because obsessive compulsive disorder is, is so, uh, vital to the framework of this book. Let me count the ways. Uh, I felt like I have to, I have to try to try to do that. I think Tomas just gave a really beautiful definition that of form. You know that 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 the form should somehow enact and embody the content. And um, I feel the same way. And and what's so beautiful about the varieties of forms that exist, both received and and experimental, is that. If there's an experience that we haven't found a form for, then it will be created by the 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 work that ensues from it. You know, as you noted, like um, the pantoum became a particular obsession of mine, partly because um, I noticed that lots of pantoums were dealing with painful and sometimes traumatic memories, 
and um, the way in which the form actually enables the writer not only to sort of embody that sense of recursion that, that's part of a difficult and sometimes traumatic memory, but also kind of working over it um, in a new way and hopefully not be entirely mastered by it so that the form can sometimes be a way of moving from one state to another, even when there's recursiveness, there's repetition, there's a sense of stuckness. Sometimes it's part of that. Do you mind describing for listeners who don't know what a pantoum is, what, what we kind of talked about the repetition part, but specifically what it is, would you mind saying that? Oh, sure. It's a, it's a Malayan poetic form, uh, usually in the form of quatrains in which uh, in, in one quatrain, the, subs- the subsequent quatrain would repeat two of those lines. And so there's a kind of chain effect of repetition that occurs as you move down the poem. So uh, half the poem is essentially repeating something that's been said before. And so without getting into all the technical, which lines repeat and the rest of it, just that there's this kind of um, this flowing and, and, and repetition that, that's built into the, built into the structure so we, there's a question I have that I, I just wanted to bring up, but I we've sort of circled around this, but I wanted to ask it a little bit more directly. Um, Phil, in the lecture that we've been speaking about, you were talking about longing for a home and a homeland that so many have. And you wrote specifically, how often have we found in a poem or a story a home that the world did not provide? Literature can be forms of home, forming home, homing form. And I wanted to ask you both about that. Um, because I think that's pretty pretty uh, profound. Well, thank you. I mean, I just remember my father castigating me at uh, breakfast for burying my head in a book or a newspaper. Uh, so that's when it started for me. I always saw there's something about reading that was a bit of an escape from the psychodramas of my house or the craziness of the world. I, you know, I was thinking about this the other day that. You know, I've been falling asleep quite regularly reading right before bedtime, and it's just struck me. You, be- you better not say reading one of my books, <laughs> that you, re- <laughs> you, you read my books, uh, you take my books to, to bed like ambient. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, lately <laughs> it's been Chekhov because it's just like comfort food for me. But, uh, but, you know, like if you think about the eye movement therapy, what's that called? Um, EMDR. Uh, eye yes. movement uh, therapy that's often moving uh, your eyes right and left very uh, deliberately and 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 constantly and that's the the um, the movement of eyes often in REM sleep and guess what that's also the movement of our eyes when we're reading isn't that so interesting that there is this sort of like dream uh, action of the eyes and that movement and, it, and it's a kind of inner, I don't know, neurological journey that we're going on. And so probably in books, I found homes that the world did not provide. And in, you know, and in my quest for writing to create those homes that I didn't find in books too. Well, yeah, that's, um, that's, yeah, that's, that's so beautifully put. Uh, for me, it's never been so much about finding a home as it has been finding company. Uh, I, I've always from the time that I was a small child, always felt like I was on the margins, uh, within like on the margins of my family, the margins of my public school experience, 
uh, the margins of my college experience, uh, you know, and, and so forth, and just kind of like rippling out. And I feel I feel very comfortable on those margins just because I've uh, lived in those spaces for so long. And I'm a naturally observant person. So being on the margins, like that's a great benefit. You know, I get to observe people and the things they do and say uh, without necessarily being without them noticing, you know, that the, the observing is happening. So for me, my reading life, my reading experience uh, has been so much of it has been finding it's almost like uh, having pen pals, you know, like like for you, like, you know, uh, like Chekhov, you know, is a pen pal. You know, like like for me, I think of these writers, uh, like in the books that I love, like these are my friends, like these are my family, like this is my community, whether they're still alive or not. You know, uh, it it doesn't it doesn't matter, and it's one of the, you know, one of the beautiful things about books is that you can yeah you can have, uh, you can form these incredibly personal and intense and intimate bonds with people across centuries and that's just oh man like uh uh, how lucky are we you know that we live in a a time where we can we can experience that it's funny how i've been thinking about how i i um again back to like i mentioned spending personally spending this last year and a half largely devoted to writing and reading i would say just as much as writing and how i've been a little bit more antisocial than I have been in the past, but I've not felt, I haven't felt any lack. Like I've, my, I've sort of assuaged any loneliness with books, you know, like I felt like I've had all these friends, companions along the way. Right. Um, yeah, that's really. Good. Well, I think there's such a difference, be, uh, such a big difference, a huge gap between uh, being alone and being lonely. Absolutely. You know, like, yes. like the culture we live in uh, would prefer it if we conflate those two. You know, but in fact, they're 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 so different. Tomas, I wrote a whole essay about just that. <laughs> I'll have to oh, nice. About it sometime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> totally agree with you. Well, I I did want to ask one more question before we get into the last like the final questions. Um, you know, Tomas, you were you were talking about in your in your lecture about, and I'm sorry, I, I am mentioning going back to both of your lectures a lot, but they were so rich with with just with so much. I want to to talk about them with you. Um, but Tomas, you were talking about in this lecture about literary citizenship. You said that we should share share your news without apology. And I've been thinking about that because like I completely agree, yet also why does it feel so uncomfortable to do, right? Like it's really hard for us to do that sometimes. Uh, yeah, so I wanted to ask you that question. <laughs> well, I think like my guess just off the cuff is that as a culture, we have assigned a great amount of value to false modesty, um, and or the you know the performance of modesty, and it's like, I mean, real modesty is better than than false modesty always, but like, what is like, yeah, what is the what is the point of that? You know, is it is it the old thing of? Um, uh oh uh Phil you you might you might know this I feel like it's a it's a it's an uh, old Irish saying uh, about the uh, like like the the tallest wheat like gets chopped down first or uh, do do you know what I'm talking about what what is that does that sound familiar Yes for sure I, yeah I don't know the precise um aphorism yeah that makes sense Yeah you know and it's like yeah just I mean we are like on social media like 
Facebook, Instagram, whatever, like we are here for your news to celebrate your news. Like your good news is, uh, is sending rays of hope, you know, into the world. And it's like, yes, you know, another one of us made it like, yes, I can't wait for that book to be in the world. Um, and like, we are here to, you know, to celebrate that. Like, I, I, I don't, so like to the person who says, please forgive me, you know, I apologize for the next two weeks, you know, I'm, I have a new book coming out. So there'll be a lot of uh, book promo stuff. And then I, I promise that immediately, immediately after that, at the end of the two weeks, I will be back to sharing cat videos with you. Um, <laughs> and it's like, I can find, I have my own steady stream of cat videos, <laughs> you know, that, that I access every day. Like I'm not, I don't follow you on social media for your cat content. You know, I, I am perfectly capable of finding my own cat, cat content, you know, um, it's like, I'm, I'm here for, like, I'm following you because of the one thing, unique thing that you can provide, which is, you know, updates about your wonderful work and art. But I feel like, I, I mean, this all extends even beyond like the art, um, one of the things that irks me is uh, when people say, you know, they share a photo, like let's say on Instagram, uh, a selfie of themselves, and, and they say, you know, uh, felt cute, might delete later. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I shared like a, a selfie that I took at the gym uh, a couple weeks ago, and I said, felt cute, won't delete later. <laughs> it's like, why would I delete it? You know? Because, Tomas, your thirst traps are just going to cause all sorts of problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Other people's thirst isn't my responsibility. Uh, so everyone has to be, take responsibility for their own thirstiness. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, I love that. I love that. I personally needed that reminder about the about the sharing the news without apology because it is it does. There's something in you that feels like, oh, I don't want to. I don't know. I don't want to take up space. I don't want to do that. You know. So I don't know. But that's that's that was right, what right. I said. You know, I ask nearly every guest this question, so I wanted to bring it to both of you as well. What is an act of kindness that you've received in your life that felt transformative or had a, a big impact on you? That's a great question. Um, Phil, you, you, you got anything? Of course. I mean, aren't we just like a, a um, catalog of kindnesses that have been given <laughs> us? <laughs> just like built of kindnesses, you know? Um I mean, the, the, the obvious one that I, that I often and I think appropriately mention is the fact that I had a teacher, a professor in college who, you know, read all of my terrible poems and took them seriously and took me seriously and um, was in conversation with me until I sort of fledged my own wings and then was able to kind of uh, move past him. So his name is Robert Cording, Bob Cording, and he's a poet and an essayist of his own. I just, I experienced love from him and a kind of non-judgmental love. That didn't mean that he didn't hold the poems to the highest standards and, you know, and challenge me as a writer, but that he said basically in everything he did that, um, that he cared about me and, and that he loved me, which is such an unprofessional type of feeling to have in academia now. But I just, I, I appreciated and got so much from that. For me, it would be a, a, a similar moment where without this act of kindness, my life very well may have gone in a completely different direction. As a graduate student in a 
PhD program in uh, Hispanic and Italian studies, I reached out to Philip Levine, not knowing him, just on a lark, sent, wrote him a letter uh, and asked him if he could read a few of my poems and let me know if he thought, you know, it might be worth it to leave this wonderful program that I was in that fully funded and was the first step towards a particular kind of life and career and, you know, try to pursue poetry and poverty. And uh, he did what um, Cording did for, uh, for, for Phil, you know, like he took my work seriously. Like this is someone who was like far and away a liter literary celebrity. Like he had no, re uh, he had no, there was no need for him to respond like to any, uh, you know, any uh, letters coming in over the transom. And, and he took my work seriously and was hard on the work and, uh, but also gave me his, his honesty. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, uh, I'm doing this for poetry, like not even not, I'm not doing this for you, but I'm doing this for poetry because poetry has done so much for me. And this is this was his way to repay, you know, the the art form. That moment really sent my life in a uh, in my passion and my heart in a different direction. Both of your responses are were really touching, and I think what is really striking me about them both of them is that it's just sort of you know, emphasizing how much how the power of just one person, like really deeply caring or or, or reading our work can have on uh, the impact that that can have. Right. And we don't need necessarily a grand audience, but if we have that one person that can make all the difference. Can you both share just a piece of art, you know, book, album, film, anything that's just had a big impact on you and that you'd like to share with us? I'll choose something recent. Uh, the most recent thing is the novel Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu. Absolutely just like blew my mind, not just blew my mind in terms of how he, uh, like the form and the structure that he uses, but I felt like it was one of those moments where, you know, I've, I've read, a, I've been reading a lot of books that I really enjoy, but you know how every now and then you get that moment where you read something that it's like, this is absolutely your jam. Like it checks every box uh, in terms of your taste as a reader. Reading that book did that for me and it just... I was like, oh, man, like, why can't every book do this? Just absolutely brilliant. Well, Tomas and I share a passion for translation. And I would say that, you know, um, one of the things that sort of made me become a writer is just being able to walk inside of the poems of the poets that I, the poems that I had to translate. They helped me more than anything imagine what it would be like to to write my own kind of original work. So, and each, each poet like opened up a, a different sort of set of world possibilities. And yeah. So, you know, the, all those like Tarkovsky, Arseny Tarkovsky, Sergei Gonlevsky, uh, Lev Rubinstein, uh, Dmitry Pshortsev, like they all just, you know, helped me kind of widen my mouth <laughs> and my capacity for the world. So I would definitely say them. Wonderful. Um, Tomas, do you have time to read us a quick poem before you I leave? do. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. So this is the um, 
the shortest poem in my most recent collection, Machete. It's called Weather Sayings. And I wanted to, for a long time, do a sort of little riff on those old weather saws. Um, uh, like, for example, green sky at morning, neighbor take warning. You know, those uh, before we had meteorologists uh, where people would pass on generation to generation ways to sort of read the environment. So I wanted to do like a take, a modern take on that. It's just called Weather Saints, and it's in uh, three very tiny chunks. So here's the first one. Piece by piece breaks the black wall cloud of police. They pound like rain and say, don't call it pain. The cold fish and muddy clouds of your face blacken, then blue. At work, your friends clown and tip toe around in their rain boots. When hope doesn't rise like bread, drink the sunlight to stay fed. And that's it. Wow. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you both for this. This was such a rich conversation. So happy to be in conversation with you both. And thank you. Thank you for your time. And hopefully I'll see you both soon. Sounds good. Thank you so much, for, Amonse, for putting us in conversation and giving us a chance to, yeah, yeah, to talk with you. It's been, it's been a blast. This episode was audio produced by Katie McMurrin. The music is by Madison Ward.